You know, I remember when I was 12, I sat in a pew not unlike this one, and I would look around at the church. I'd look at the windows and how decorated they were. I would look up at the front of the altar. I would look at the instruments. I would feel the softness of the pew in front of me. I'd pick up the hymn book and crack it open. And I'd hear that sound and read the words. And really, I'd spend all the time looking around and wondering what difference does it make? Have you ever wondered that as you sat there? As you sat here in these pews? As you sat in this church or somewhere else? What difference does it make as we sing these songs and we pray and we praise? Well, if you've ever wondered that question, you're not the only one. There are a lot of people that wonder that same question. Two people that wonder that question and probably came to a different conclusion than you are Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. Richard Dawkins is a professor of science at Oxford University. He's an evangelism for Darwinism. He's an atheist. He's a very well-known atheist. And he wrote books like The God Delusion. And in 2004, he wrote a book called A Devil's Chaplain. In these books, he expresses his hostility toward religion, toward Christianity in particular, And that's been evident since the earliest of his years. And he has identified, he says, atheism is the only credible intellectual option in the modern era. Dawkins says that it's rooted in philosophical rationalism. It says, if religious beliefs had any evidence going for them, we might have to accept them in spite of their concomitant unpleasantness. But there is no such evidence. And religious beliefs are the product of a malignant infection. Those are strong words. Christopher Hitchens is also a speaker, a writer. And he's best known to believers for his 2007 book that says, God is not great, how religion poisons everything. He's been waging a war against the Christian faith also for a number of years. Interestingly, in 2010, he contracted esophageal cancer. And this is the same cancer that his father died of. And in the process of that, he made some decisions about life and death and all of these things, and he came to the conclusion that still, I will not give in and realize that there's anything beyond myself. When he was told that other people were praying for him, he said the prayers for his healing don't make him feel any better. He even declined an invitation to appear at a rabbi's prayer service for him as part of a national everybody pray for Hitchens Day because he didn't see any point in the exercise. There are people like this who say such things. They believe that Christianity really is a waste of time. It's a hobby for the weak-minded. They say that intellectually no one can prove the existence of God using any evidence that doesn't have some other equally valid explanation for it. And therefore, their desire is, their ambition is, to destroy it, to root it out, to remove it from the public square in any form. Any theistic belief must be removed because it does no good. It only causes individuals to blindly follow a hierarchy. In short, 
These men think you're stupid. Well, there are others that wouldn't be in the camp of the atheists, right? They simply view religion as an unnecessary crutch. It doesn't really yield any change in life, does it? It's simply something that makes people feel good. At best, it's a basic moral code. It's kind of like a self-help book on steroids. And that's why we're all here. To kind of get that feeling. Well, what do these views have in common? They tend to look at the Christian faith and evaluate it and say, it really doesn't make any difference. No more difference than, say, anything else. So for those that it's good for, you can come and sit in a church on Sunday, and that's great for you. But for me, I'm going to find it in a tree, or I'm going to find it in a rock, or I'm going to find my meaning in my boat, or whatever that case is. Now, is it really that hard to understand where some of these folks are coming from? Have you ever been there yourself? Certainly, it's easy to point to ways throughout the centuries where Christianity has been abused where the concepts have been um, abused with power and violence. Or we see things like the cult in Texas, or we see some recent pastor scandal or some fraud that has been perpetuated on, on all of the Christians. But these are the extremes, aren't they? Are these the types of things that people point to when they say they don't believe in Christianity? Some might. But I think more often than not, It's the everyday person that has an encounter with other Christians and they look at that person and they look at each other and they look at all of us and they ask the question, what difference does it make? And if they're not able to see that difference, truly see that difference, they come to the conclusion that it doesn't make a difference. That's a tough thing. Last weekend, we were at a, at a friend's house, and they were telling stories of how their church, a very small church, allows individuals to come up and give testimonies of how God has changed their lives. And the biggest complaint that they had about those testimonies was the insincerity of them. And people would come up and they would share things like, my infant dropped my cell phone into the toilet, and Jesus saved my cell phone! And this is publicly proclaimed as the power of Jesus Christ in our lives. Let's get real, folks. Is anyone outside of this building going to believe that Jesus Christ is responsible for saving your cell phone? Is that the understanding that we have for the power of God and Jesus Christ in our lives? If that's what it is, we have a God that's about this big. I don't believe we follow a God that big. I believe we have an uncomprehensible, incomprehensible God that has changed our lives in radical ways. And we need to be able to portray that to others. Now, George Barna, who founded the Barna Research Group, he's quoted a lot. He's a researcher on Christian trends and those types of things. He makes a lot of studies about how the differences between Christians and non-Christians. And over his 25 years of studying these things, most of his studies tend to reveal, at least his approach is, that there really isn't much difference between Christians and non-Christians. At least the behaviors and Beliefs of Christians and non-Christians. So they often cite things like the divorce rate. In 2008, the divorce rate in the general public was 33%. It's not 50%. Very important for Christians to understand that. You often, often hear the statistic that 50% of all marriages end in divorce, which is a true statistic. That does not mean that 50% of people who get married get divorced. 
Second and third marriages have much higher trends of, of ending than first marriages do. So the actual rate of divorce is 33% across the country. The rate of divorce for Christians, 33%. The rate of divorce for atheists, 30%. Why is that? Well, the rate of marriage for atheists is 65%. The rate of people who get married of Christians is 85%. That's a significant difference. If less people are going to get married, less people are going to get divorced. And so, therefore, there's a big difference. There's other statistics that he'll point to. He'll talk to uh, things about how much people have given or have they taken drugs for medication or have they read read books. or There's a whole lot of different statistics that he points to. And essentially, what he comes down to is there isn't a whole lot of difference at times. Now, when I see these statistics, I come up with two conclusions. One is you can make statistics say anything you want. Anyone who studied statistics in here, as I have, knows that. And so there's only so much weight you can put into them. However, they do point to some trends. And what we do see is that there are some differences, but maybe not the tremendous differences we might hope for when Christians are living their faith. Now, another point that I take from that is that we're all in process. And so if we all of a sudden assume, okay, now I'm a Christian, and so there all my, all, all my behaviors are going to be a certain way. That discredits the whole point of the journey, doesn't it? This is a journey. And so we're not going to all of a sudden look a certain way because we're believers, but we're going to have a trend toward that direction, aren't we? And you do see those in statistics. Now, pastors tend to point to these studies in an effort to motivate us toward action. And I kind of question that belief, that standpoint, because how effective is it an approach to motivate you to do something by telling you what you're not doing? It's not a very positive approach. I would much rather look at what is it we're shooting for and approach that as opposed to look at what we're not doing and say, how bad, are you, how bad are we? So my hope this morning is to show some compelling evidence, talk about some stories of change, some transformation that I see, and then look at some of the characteristics that might help us as we seek to, to live lives of transformation. Because here's the point. If Jesus doesn't make a difference... What are we all doing here? Well, I've seen that he has, and uh, it's one of the blessings of preparing these messages is you get to see and hear a lot of those things. And I know that there are some stories of people in this room uh, that have seen dramatic change. And so I know that there are people that have experienced that. Now, Peter Kapsner uh, was kind enough to join our staff and elders about a month ago, and they assisted us in walking through some discussions. And in the course of that, he mentioned some scriptures that discuss the word life in scripture. And he talked about things like John 3.16, which, of course, appeals to the belief in Jesus leading us to everlasting life. Well, as I began to dig into that and others a little bit more, I got intrigued by John 10, which is where we're going to spend our time this morning. And you can turn with me to John 10, and we're going to read 1 through 15. And in that passage, Jesus answers the question, Why did Jesus come to earth in the first place? What does he want for us? So John 10, 1 through 15, reads as follows. Now, I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You will probably be reading from the NIV in in the Pew Bible. Or your own. But here's what it says. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. He who enters by the door is a a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him, because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him, because they do not know the voice of the strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand that those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life, For the sheep. Now, I love this passage. It's fairly straightforward, but it does take a little bit of exploration. First of all, a lot of your Bibles may say it's a parable, the parable of the sheep or the parable of the good shepherd. And when you look at it, it's really a parable is a symbolic story with generally one point, and then you compare that to what's called an allegory. An allegory is a little bit more complex, it uses similes and metaphors, and it has slightly more complex points or several points within it. And so as we look at this allegory, we see some things at the beginning. John, he introduces things by saying, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say unto you. And John doesn't introduce things like that. His style is not introduce a new topic that way, but instead to build on something he's already been speaking about. And so if you look at this passage and see that truly, truly, you have to look back at what is he building on? And so you'd start with chapter 9 and you look at what he was just talking about. The rulers and the Pharisees had assumed in chapter 9 that they were the spiritual guides of the people. Jesus' point of view is that these guys were falling seriously short in that area. And he compares them directly to hired hands. So he's building on this comparison between a good shepherd and a hired hand. Somebody who's just doing it for the money. Who's just in it because it's a position. And so he's saying, I am the good shepherd. Not only does he say, I am a good shepherd, but he says he is the door. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But he's making a clear contrast between true and false teachers. He's revealing his true status as the good shepherd and the false leadership of the Pharisees. Now, the word picture of the the sheep in the fold may not be so clearly understood today. And so I wanted to spend just a little bit of time describing that. Recently, I've been reading a book, um, and I have the 1970 cover versus the newly updated looking cover. Um, And this book is um, written, it's A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. And I would encourage you to take this book. It's a very quick and easy read, but it's a good thing to spend some time with in the morning. 
and to get an understanding of what Jesus and others throughout Scripture are talking about when they talk about sheep and shepherds and what the behavior of they, them uh, are like. So as I read that 41-year-old book um, and others about this, um, I began to understand a little bit more about what a sheepfold is. A sheepfold is an open yard. It's surrounded by a low wall, and you'll see a picture of one up here. It's a very small one. It's actually in the UK. But several flocks were given give their shepherds in a uh, fold like this over to the care of a porter. And the porter stays at the front gate. And the porter stays there all night. And the shepherd drops their sheep off and leaves them in the fold. And there's multiple shepherds that drop off their, their flocks into this fold. So, if you're looking at this and you realize if someone was to climb over this wall, who would they have to be? There's no reason to climb over the wall if you have a gate and you have a porter, someone's protecting the sheep. Anyone who climbs over the wall is obviously a, sh- a thief or a robber, which is why he says that. And so he's pointing out, he's saying that multiple uh, sheep are in this pasture, in this fold, and there are those that are thieves and robbers. The real shepherd enters by the gate. And when he does, his voice is familiar to the sheep that are in there. One commentary wrote this. Had their personal experience about working with the sheep over in Israel. He says, having taught in Israel, two illustrations have become seared in my memory concerning eastern shepherds and their sheep. One is that of a shepherd leading his sheep throughout the city of Jerusalem, just outside the Jaffa gate. Cars were whizzing by, and while the shepherds simply sang and whistled to their sheep, and they dutifully followed wherever the shepherd went, despite all the bustling traffic that was nearby. Certainly in tune to what the shepherd has to say. The other picture is that of an early morning with the Bedouins, when the shepherds began to lead their sheep out of the sheepfold, which contained the combined flocks of four different shepherds. As each shepherd took his turn and began to sing and call his sheep, they dutifully separated from the larger group, the larger flock, and began to follow him into the hills for their daily feeding. I never quite got that before when I was reading this, and I started to explore that a little bit and realized that in these folds were multiple shepherds. And it's not like they had the ear tags like we've got today or, or some technology that's going to separate the sheep. They had their voice. And they walked into the fold, and if it was a room like this and that I began to speak, hopefully my two kids and my wife would stand up and say, it's time to ready to go. Because they know who I am. (laughs) The point is, the sheep know the shepherd's voice. Now, without apology, Jesus declares that he was not only the door, but also the good shepherd. He was both. He was the way into the fold of safety and he was the great provider to guide them where they needed to be. So under his guidance, they followed and they were fed And they were cared for. Now, this shepherd, as he describes them, the reason he describes this is to to compare, again, his role with his sheep, which is the people that he is is following, or the followers of him, versus the Pharisees, who simply weren't interested in the sheep. In chapter 9, we see how the man was healed of his blindness by Jesus Christ. And what would the Pharisees' response I don't care about the fact that you're healed. What I care about is, this is the Sabbath, buddy. You're not supposed to be healed. Here's a guy who was born blind, raised throughout his whole life, and Jesus comes and heals him in a miraculous 
event. And the Pharisees' concern is, this doesn't follow the rules. That is the example of a hired hand, which is why Jesus talks about this. Hired hands don't care about the sheep, but Jesus does. He's the good shepherd. So what does he tell us as the good shepherd? I think the greatest affirmation in this passage appears in verse 10, which is where I'm going to spend my time today. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. Now, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens don't believe that we have life abundantly or we have it even available to us. But Jesus says that that's what he offers. That they might have life and have it abundantly. So I started looking at these words. That they may have. The word echo is to have, to hold, to be able to experience today. That they might have life, which is the word zoe. Same word in John 3.16. Life, eternal life. Is this simply life after we're gone? Or is this life today? Well, the word today, the word that's used for life today, life, existence, living, the way of life, ongoing living, these are all descriptions of the word Zoe. It's not simply something eventually to come. It's about talking about today. Do we have that available to us today? And then lastly, the word abundantly, or to the full, it might say in your version. The word parisos, and you'll see up here the description and how that is broken up. Parisos is translated an advantage, something exceptional, superfluous, extreme, beyond what we currently have, something more, clearly different from the ordinary, something exceptional. But if our lives are not that different, where, where does the disconnect happen? Is Jesus saying here that our lives are to be more filled with wealth are they to be easier lives? Are they to be simpler lives? Are they to be comfortable lives? I don't see any evidence of that in Scripture. What I see is fuller lives, richer lives, more significant lives, lives that make a difference. I think we get those confused often. But what he is saying in this is if the sheep understand their place, if they listen to his voice, and if they trust in the shepherd, then their lives will be exceptional, beyond the ordinary. So most of us say that uh, we experience some of this, and a lot of us find a hard time searching for what that really looks like. In fact, a lot of times you'll hear a sermon like this, and you'll be sitting there saying, yes, but what does that look like? So I want to give you some stories about that. And I'm going to start with the story of Paul. I'm going to take some stories from Scripture and some stories from life. And we're going to start with Paul because his life is one of the most significant transformations in Scripture. Now, Paul, known as Saul, was a highly educated man. He was educated in the Jewish structure. He knew everything there was to know about the Jewish law. He followed it flawlessly. He was friends with the Jewish leadership, in fact, part of the Jewish leadership he saw Jesus as a threat because he was so he he felt his faith was so significant to him and this is not necessarily a criticism of Paul this is something in, that I would consider something to respect in him is that he treasured his faith his Jewish faith so much 
that when Jesus came in, that became a threat. This was something different. This is outside of the box. I haven't heard of this before. And so I'm going to protect that with all that I am. And Jesus saw that in him, knew his commitment, knew of his loyalty, knew of his personality, knew of his style, and used it later on. He was in full agreement with the, the uh, death of Stephen, who was the first martyr in the Christian faith. He not only was full in agreement with it, but he was standing right there, and people laid their robes at his feet so he could watch them while others stoned Stephen as a result of his faithfulness to Jesus Christ. So here was a man who had been violent, had been ravaging the church, had, been, had connections with the Jewish leadership so closely that he could write a letter to the synagogue at Damascus and ask for their permission to come and to persecute the Christians there. And they were granted that permission. And so he began to follow that. And then he experiences Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And his life is radically, dramatically changed. And he becomes a man who goes from being a violent aggressor who dragged men and women out of their homes, put them into prison, and encouraged their execution to a gentle man who lovingly worked for that faith, that same faith that he hated. He went from a violent, hate-filled man to being a man filled with love who would die for that same faith that he rejected. He went from someone willingly to inflict pain on other people to become a man who willingly accepted pain and persecution in his own life. And he went from being totally self-reliant and self-confident and reliant upon law to somebody totally dependent on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the objective of our lives as Christians is to be transformed as well. But it's hard to look at a story like this and think to yourself, is that really possible for me? Well, is there something this radical in lives today? I want to tell you a story about John Turnipseed. He lives not 20 miles from where you're sitting. John is a man whose family has had struggles over generations. Beginning with his father and extending to his grandson, four generations of Turnipseeds have been shot in prison, high school dropouts, violent, deadbeat dads, unfathered, 30 of their extended family members are in prison, 10 of which are for murder, and they are, the, are responsible for forming the Rolling 30 Blood Street Gang. John spent 10 years in prison, over three different times, and then came into the Fathering Center at Urban Ventures in downtown Minneapolis. So where's John's life today? John is currently the director of Urban Ventures Center for Fathering in Minneapolis. He's the product of violence, both from the streets and from within prison. And his now, now his goal is to instill conscience back into the society and into our culture. He has a, runs a program that touches the lives of 600 men and 200 women every year. He's been on shows like Everyday Hero, featured by TPT, locally here. And through this program, men learn about male responsibility, they're taught parental direction, and they're encouraged to become personally and financially responsible for their children and their families. Radical difference. So what do you attribute this change in his life? Let's listen to his own words. I was sitting at my home computer, and as I was writing, my grandson, David, little man as I call him, was pestering me about a toy that he was holding. As I stopped what I was doing to give him some attention, my eyes welled up with tears as I realized he was my story. 
If it had not been for the fathering center, he would not be standing here with his wonderful smile, his infectious personality, and his exceptional brain. I had been blessed by learning parenting through my attending of the fathering center for two years as a participant and then 13 years as a student and teacher in the program that has prepared me for this moment. I have two incarcerated children that I visit regularly in their prisons, but they love me and they eagerly await my visits. I have one child dead at age three by murder. I have two beautiful daughters who are now so proud of me and are great moms to my grandchildren. My daughters call me at least once a week for advice and just say, Hi, Dad. I'm now Dad and Papa, Johnny to many. And I owe it to Jesus and his redeeming grace and an organization called Urban Ventures that introduced me to him. I was a deadbeat dad and a crack addict. Now I look to the wonderful eyes of David, little man, who loves me and needs my steady presence in his life. A nothing has become something in the lives of my children, mother, wife, and grandchildren. This is not heroic. It is Jesus at work. I am so amazed how he restored my status with my family. I am a product of redemption. And my children now have a dad. I do not know how this will be perceived, but it's my story. And I cry many nights about this new life about how God has shown his mercy to a one-time nothing who is now a son of the king. That's radical change. Dramatic change. Abundant life. What do I see in common between the lives of Paul and the life of John Turnipseed? I see a need to humble yourself. And when we humble ourselves is the only time that we can be experiencing and realizing our position as the sheep. Sheep are dumb. Anybody who works with sheep knows that. We're very simple, but we depend on the shepherd. The only way to experience the life that the shepherd has to offer is to trust in him wholly, wholeheartedly, is to lead and to, to follow that shepherd who is leading us. In order to do that, we need to put our own agendas to the side and take a step forward and say, yes, I need you, shepherd. I need you in my life and I'm going to follow you. And so we need to humble ourselves in order to experience, even get exposure to this abundant life. Again, compare that to uh, Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, who will not humble themselves. They are dependent on their own understanding of life, as many of us are. And this is a process. This isn't simple. It's not easy. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. One of the hardest things, I think, to do. When I hear that the gospel is an easy decision, I, I, I kind of have a, a lump in my throat. Because it's not a very easy thing to do to humble yourself and become dependent on Jesus Christ as your Savior. Well, let's look at another example. Richard Stearns is the author of The Hole in the Gospel. He was born in Syracuse, New York, to parents who had the highest level of education being 8th grade. So he didn't have a whole lot. Consequently, there wasn't a whole lot of books in the home. There wasn't a lot of resources for him. His, parents were al- his father was an alcoholic, and his mothers and sisters were the result um, of his third marriage. He was able to make it into college, and made it determine, he determined to make his life count. 
He got a job at Gillette for two years and then became a marketing associate at Parker Brothers Games. After seven years at the company, at the age of 33, Rich became the CEO of Parker Brothers Games. And he then moved on to become the CEO of Lennox Fine China. And there he oversaw six divisions, six manufacturing facilities, 4,000 employees, and 500 million in annual sales. He even supplied the White House with their Fine China. So life was great. He was married. He had five children. He lived in a ten-bedroom stone farmhouse, his dream house, on five acres of land. Drove nice cars, had money to buy nice things, and was able to provide his family in every way. Rich was a success. And his seven-figure income far exceeded that of his dreams. So one day, so far it doesn't sound like you need a transformation, does it? Any of us relate to this story? Well, he got a phone call. He got a phone call from a headhunter uh, looking for an executive position with World Vision. They wanted a new president. And at first, Rich brushed off the idea and he said, this isn't for me. I've made it. I've got all I want. But God didn't let him go. And continued to have event after event. When you read his book, and I encourage you to get the book and read through it, it tells this whole story about how God would not let go of him in this position. Taking the position at World Vision meant saying no to his salary, to his bonuses, to his status, to his ten-bedroom stone farmhouse and his five acres of land to his cars, to his nice expensive things, to his comfortable lifestyle, not only for him, but for his family. Saying yes meant saying yes to poverty, to ghettos, to famine, to disease, to death, starvation, the child sex trade, rape, genocide, and all the ugliness of the world. Well, after a prolonged battle with God, Rich said yes and went to become the president of World Vision. And since then, they've experienced extraordinary growth. He still remembers the sadness, the pain, the anxiety, and the risk, and the fear that came with accepting that position. But quickly he then tells about the many blessings that he's seen firsthand, not only in his own life, and not only in the world vision, but in the change that's happened in him as a result of exposing himself to what God had to offer in this abundant life. We see in Richard Stearns, and in the life of Paul, and in the life of John Turnipseed, the desire to listen to the voice of the shepherd. The second thing that we need to do in order to receive and be a part of the abundant life, when we listen to the voice of the shepherd, when we follow that shepherd out of the fold and begin to take steps to follow where he wants us to go, it's only then that we can begin to experience the abundant life. Is Richard Stearns experiencing the abundant life as he sits in his church? He was a giver. He was a good man. He was respected. He was making lots of money. He was seen as a good Christian moral man. Many of the people in this room, and I'm not excluded from this, relate to that story and say, that's kind of what we're shooting for. But is that the abundant life that he calls us to? It is a very difficult thing for us to actually take a step out and follow the shepherd, especially when he calls us away from convenience, away from comfortable lifestyles, and towards something that's difficult, towards something that's going to require a lot of us, dare I say, picking up a cross and asking us to follow him. But it's through that voice, through that obedience, that we get exposed to the abundant life. Very few of us are willing to take that step. Finally, I'm going to talk to you about two women. First is the story of Mary Magdalene. 
Mary went from being a demon-possessed woman to a devoted disciple. Mary is mentioned 14 times in the Gospels, and we find her in Luke 8 having been possessed by seven demons, which probably caused her to have bouts of insanity, that Jesus then cast out of her, freeing her from that awful malady. And then we equate, some of us equate Mary Magdalene with the woman in Luke 7, which was called the sinner, or also the woman caught in adultery. That's not clear in Scripture one way or the other, but many do. So Mary then, after in this condition, comes to Jesus, or Jesus comes to her, and frees her from those things. And who does she become? She becomes a peaceful and committed follower of Jesus Christ. A grace-filled woman. Someone who supported the ministry of Jesus, both in action and financially. She was bold, even in danger. She was, seen, she was the last person to be at the cross with Jesus Christ, while others have run away from him. She was there with him. She was the last to leave his tomb after the night had fallen. She was the first to visit the tomb in the morning regardless of the fact that her life was at risk. And why did she do that? Because she was committed to the shepherd. And her life showed dramatic change. Now another woman that I mentioned to you is Barb Keefe. Barb Keefe is my mother-in-law. We spent the last two weeks as a family out in New York visiting Jill's family. And what was brought us there was the fact that Barb has been in a battle for the last six months. First, back in January, she was told that she had inoperable pancreatic cancer. So we began that process of exploring that, and she began setting things in order. Um, one of the things that she did is she called me and asked to, for me to do her funeral, which was a dramatic it was it was an amazing thing to have that phone call. But that began a path for me of exploring her life a little bit. Three weeks later, we got a phone call that um, Barb had collapsed. Um, she had a stroke, a mini stroke, and they discovered an aneurysm in her mind, in her head. And that also could not be reached by the arteries or the veins, however you get up there. Some of you all know that. Those tubes that go up in the brain. And so she had to go in for brain cancer and she, or brain surgery, excuse me, and she uh, went through that. When we approached the, Jill and I and our family, we jumped in the car and uh, we immediately went out there. And that's in fact why the men's retreat was canceled this year because I was going out to see Barb. And um, when we did that, um, we showed up into Buffalo, New York, and we were told that she had a 20% chance of making it through the surgery. And that was before they discovered that she had a minor heart attack. The surgery was scheduled to, uh, to be done, and Barb herself, as well as many of the family, believed that she would probably not come out. She was ready to meet her shepherd. We stood there around her bedside. It was Jill and myself, her husband Bob, Jill's sister Diane, and we were saying her goodbyes, and we were saying um, anything that needed to be said. Fortunately, Barb was in a position to say, I don't feel like there's anything left unsaid. She did, in fact, tell me about this book at that very sitting, which is why I recommend it to you. One of the most significant books of her life. And if somebody says that to me, I'm probably going to pick up the book and read it. But as she stood there and she looked around, she turned to her husband 
And she said, Bob, we've never had much, but we are truly rich. Then she looked at him and she was tearing as he was tearing up. And she turned to him and said, and she grabbed his hand, just kind of touched his hand and said, Bob, in all things, Bob, in all things. And that was in reference to Romans 8.28. We know that God has called all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called to his purpose. A little while later, um, we went in and sat there with, and before she went into the surgery. And um, what we didn't find is Barb praying for herself or for what was going to happen. What we found is Barb was praying for the medical staff, for the people in the rooms and the sides of her, for and thankful to the people that are in that room for what they have been doing for not only her, but everyone else. She had a peace about her. And then, five hours later, the picture to the right is what we took. That she made it through. Now, over the course of the next four months, things went downhill. Until two weeks ago, when she had the second surgery on her brain that released some excess fluids, and Barb came back to pre-stroke levels over the course of ten days. It was then that she sat with me and she told me, what these four months have been like. She was unable to think clearly. She was wrestling with pain. She would deal with hallucinations. Her body functions would be deteriorating. She couldn't think clearly enough to fully quote the Bible that she treasured so deeply. But she would think over and over again as much as she could get her hands on. And she would say, the Holy Spirit intercedes for me. Or she would be able to get into her mind, the Spirit also helps me. I know not what to pray for, but I know you do. This was Romans 8.26 8.26 that says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which can't be uttered. And then she said, I would constantly repeat to myself, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because that's all she could remember. And that's from Joshua 1.5. She said that it would come back to her mind was hang on no matter what. That faith is not dependent upon circumstance. That faith is about depending on the shepherd in the midst of the valley. And so the story of Barb and the story of these others that I've told you about talk, talk to us about three things that we need to do to experience the abundant life. We need to be humble, we need to listen to the voice of the shepherd, and we need to trust in his guidance, no matter where he takes us, whether it's in the valley or whether it's to the peak. So now let's be honest. Many of us don't want to go through some of the things that the people that I've mentioned have gone through. Well, I've got good news for you in the fact that you're not called to go through what they've gone through. But you are called to pick up your own cross and to... Follow the shepherd nonetheless. That may look very, very different. And it may be very difficult. But we are called to pick up our crosses and follow him. Through my research um, in doing this sermon, I found one book that might be of help. There's no way in 30 to 40 minutes that I'm going to be able to tell you and describe to you what's going to happen and how to do all of this to have the abundant life. But I do encourage you to dive into things like this. This is Maximum Faith. It's by George Barna, who I talked about earlier. It just was published. In fact, July 1st is when it just became available. 
And so what the purpose of this book is, it explores the barriers, the steps along the way toward transformation, toward the abundant life. It talks about the barriers and it talks about the successes and it tells it through the story of people who have experienced it. And so my encouragement to you is to get a book like this. I'm about to dive into the book and discover more about it and I would encourage you to join me. We can explore some of the barriers. We can explore some of the secrets to the successes of, what, of how this happens. But most of all, we need to depend upon the shepherd. Now, I believe that the majority of the people that are sitting in this body right now long for the abundant life. I think they, you long for it, not just at the end of life afterwards, but I think that you long for it today and the here and the now. Anyone under the age of 30 doesn't even think very much about the end of life and after that point. What we're talking about is we want to see significance in our lives today. The only way that we can see that is through telling these stories, to hearing what God is doing in and through us as people, and then turning our lives over to Him. We see glimpses of it, and we love those glimpses. Remember, it's a process. When we see those little things, let's grab onto those and tell other people about them. Two weeks ago, we heard from Dale Christensen in the midst of his job search, and the fact that, in his words, quote, he has a peace and a calmness that defies logic. He's telling the story of how God is making a difference in his life. So do you have stories of how Jesus has changed your life? If you do, share them with somebody. Talk to us about them. Share with one another how Jesus Christ has changed your life. Because through that, you will be encouraging them and you will be encouraging yourself in the stories that you have. If you don't have those stories... Talk to somebody about that. Talk to one of us as staff. Talk to some of your friends. Talk to your small group. Get involved in a small group if you're not in one. And be honest about that. Because God calls you to more. He is your good shepherd. And he wants for you an abundant life. A life that is beyond the normal. It is beyond what we have today. And so we say to the Christopher Hitchens and the Richard Dawkins of the world that Jesus Christ most certainly can and does make a difference in our lives. And while it can be a challenge to intellectually wrestle with the details of Jesus' life, death, the resurrection, it's even more difficult to humble ourselves, to listen to his voice, and to follow him. Trust in a shepherd whose voice we have come to know. May our lives be an even greater reflection of that trust and grace in our lives today. Join me in prayer, will you? Father, we are thankful, ever thankful, for who you are. Not just what you do for us, but who you are and what you have chosen to extend to us through the grace and forgiveness that you offer. Lord, I pray that we would grab hold of those things, that you would show us, show us who you are. Show us the tangible reality of who you are in our day-to-day lives. Even today, Father, help us to see you in new ways. In Jesus' name, amen.